Welcome to ADHD Love Parent Talk, episode 40. If you want to look at what kind of stuff you've been through and get your ACEs score, which is just your adverse childhood experiences score, be aware that the definition of trauma does not just include war or physical assault. That's such a myth. It involves other things where you felt unsafe. It, be aware that neglect takes a toll on the body and on the mind. That gets so left out. Neglect is neglected. How about that? Out of conversations about trauma. I've had so many clients over the years I've been working in this field who didn't give themselves permission to label something as traumatic. Mm-hmm. And now when you label as traumatic, you're not labeling yourself as a traumatized person. You're saying this memory stuck with me in a way like a thorn in my brain that it, there, there's a pain there that once that memory is desensitized, that memory network is desensitized, it's taken out. And so when you give yourself permission to look at something as a traumatic experience, you're not identifying as that. You are identifying it as something that can be removed. Hello, and welcome to the ADHD Love Parent Talk podcast. If you felt like you have been walking your path alone as an adult with ADHD, or as a parent with children with ADHD, you are finally home. I interview parents and professionals, including doctors, coaches, educators, and so much more so you can not only learn more information about ADHD, I also want you to have tools that you can put in your toolbox as you are going through your journey. Hey, my ADHD family, welcome to another episode of ADHD Love Parent Talk, where we talk about all things ADHD. Today, I have my guest, Jeremy, and we are actually going to dig into trauma. So trauma comes up quite a bit in the ADHD community. So I really wanted to break that down today and really talk through, you know, what is trauma? How do you recognize trauma? And then what are some ways to manage it? So Jeremy, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to have you. So please introduce yourself and tell the audience a little bit about you. Absolutely. So my name is Jeremy Fox. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I'm in the state of Georgia. I am an EMDRIA approved EMDR consultant, which is a mouthful. It simply means I have reached the consultant level as an EMDR therapist. So I've done training. I can help other clinicians. develop their skills and become certified. So I I specialize in trauma work specifically with eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing therapy. Wow. That is very impressive. So we're going to dig into that piece of it. So, but for now, how do you also know so much about ADHD? So I, from being a licensed professional counselor, from working with people who have ADHD as well. So on a therapeutic level, helping train them with mindfulness and having some post-grad training in that. Okay. So if somebody wants to get a diagnosis, I mean, why should it be, whether they're trying to decide if they're going to get a diagnosis or not, why should it even be important to them for ADHD? That's a great question. So if someone, I mean, it would be going through life really not having the the tools and the diagnostic background to, to know, like having an actual diagnosis to know what the issue is. So I want people to understand there are very limited cases where you would ever be forced to take a medication. I mean, for, for kids, schools can recommend things like that, but parents can, can, you know, have some leeway, but getting a diagnosis does not mean you're consenting to treatment that you don't want. Mm-hmm. So I recommend for ADHD, if people really want to know if they have it, to get some cognitive testing. And that can be done even pro bono for free from PhD students at college, at uh, universities who are trained to become psychologists. Yeah. So whatever your area is, wherever region you're in, you can determine if there's a, a, a grad school nearby where psychologists are, are doing that. For free. Of course, you can also go pay someone in practice to do that. So different cognitive tests can um, help predict if someone has ADHD. Uh, you don't just have to go to someone, tell symptoms, have it checked off, and then you get the diagnosis. That works too. But cognitive testing is a really good way to go with that. And also, again, you're just going to get the diagnosis to see if you have ADHD. It's also very important to go because, I mean, to get to visit a professional, 
because you want to ensure that, and this gets ahead a little bit, it's not trauma or something else that mimics ADHD Mm -hmm. in those inattention, hyperactivity, anxiety symptoms. Okay, that's very good. So there's a lot of stigma around ADHD and there is a lot of you know, I've been dealing with this for a very long time. So like for me, I just got diagnosed at 45 last year and I had been dealing with just my life for a very long time. And I said, you know, should I really get the diagnosis or not? I decided to move forward for for me for validation and also to be able to relate to my children. But for those, they're just trying to decide whether they should go and get the diagnosis or not, whether it's because they don't want the label or for stigma or whatever it may be, what would your advice be to those people? So my advice would be, be patient with yourself. Ask what kind of records this will be on. I mean, the pros to it would definitely be, again, that you have some real solid documentation and validation and a prognosis and a plan for how to move forward if you have ADHD, trauma, or both. So depending on who you go to as a clinician or or doctor, they may or may not even be comfortable diagnosing ADHD. I used to work with some psychiatrists who would say, I'm not going to give you medication until you get cognitive testing done that said you have, yeah. So, So that's what I would say is I'd say, be aware that for one thing, it might be a process to get treatment. And for another thing, you know, finding a good doctor, finding someone you feel comfortable having a dialogue with and not simply taking being spoken to and not feeling like it's a back and forth thing. That's going to be important because you're going to feel more comfortable potentially taking medication or doing something. If you can give that feedback and say, I don't think this is working. I do think it's working. There are non-stimulant ADHD medications now like Stratera. There are so many options that going and getting a diagnosis is not going to, that's a first step. You're not sold into anything and you don't have to tell anyone your diagnosis if you don't want. That's a medical record that would come up maybe in times of emergency or something if you're in a doctor's office or whatever, but it's, I can't think, think of that being disclosed in times apart from crisis. If someone has to make like an emergency, even then that would be left out typically. I'm talking about like hospitalizations. Right. Right. um, That's called private health information, PHI, that's something that's on your record, but not public. I mean, that's not something that you have to reveal. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So it does that process go the same for children? So for parents trying to decide if they get their child diagnosed or should they get their child diagnosed or not? Is that the same thought process for them? Help me understand that more. Um, Sure. So for example, we talked about, okay, for an adult, if you've been dealing with your life, you're, you know, for a period of time, you've just been working the way that you've been working and you're trying to decide whether you should get diagnosed or not. And there could be so many reasons why you go move forward and why you don't. But when you're dealing with children, it's new. They're just trying to figure out how they can support them and help them. And a diagnosis, depending on the situation, could be helpful. But again, they're not sure if they want their child to have that label right? They don't Mm -hmm. want them to have that stigma. But a parent like me, when I look at it, I look at it as a way for them to get the support that they need. So what would your thought process be in terms of whether a parent should decide if they should get their child diagnosed or not or tested or not? Okay. That's okay. I I fully understand. I would just wonder like, who has to know this? Mm -hmm. If the teachers do, I would wonder like, are they allowed to reveal that to the other kids? I would not Suppose right. So stigma here is something that is extreme. I'm I'm very aware of that. As a therapist, I talk people through different different elements of stigma, and I've worked with all different manner of diagnoses. Okay, from moderate depression all the way through people who have schizophrenia. So I know stigma, and I'm aware how it plays into things. But I would say if it's a real concern, you can take steps to not discuss the diagnosis, and you can and with your child. We're talking about like if we're telling them that they have this, I would really lean on discussing that it's something that can be a positive thing. People talk about ADHD as a superpower. I think we have to unpack what we're actually talking about then because some kids would be very savvy, know that you're kind of buttering them up in some ways. But in other ways, like it really is something that 
can be extremely helpful, like the hyper focus, right? So as long as it's not too hokey and, and the kid doesn't take it as the corny, there's absolutely a lot of truth to ADHD as something that can be wielded. So I would say that reframing of it, I would say, again, limiting what you say. Like if you don't want to be the martyr for destigmatizing stuff, don't take on that burden and be aware of what you're going to be comfortable doing. What you're comfortable with your kid talking about, like you can tell your child, hey, you can talk about this. You don't have to. You're in charge. No one has to know stuff about you that you don't want them to. I would say a huge element of getting them diagnosed. For one thing, you never know what your child has till you go get it diagnosed. So we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but ADHD and, and trauma can look extremely similar. So you might not even be working with ADHD. You might think your kid has it, but if you had held off on, on getting them diagnosed, you might have been looking at it in, in an inaccurate way. Um, not necessarily. Parents know their kids. Absolutely. And someone who gets who's in the room with them for an hour, however long, is not. And they, they can speak to some diagnostic stuff. But the longer ADHD testing, that will, the cognitive testing is going to be pretty good for that. And a little bit more in depth than just the checklist. And for a kid, they're going to have to probably do something like that because the verbal report stuff is not going to be as advanced, obviously, on an abstract thinking level as it would be with an adult. And so just be aware that you may have to have some conversations with your, with your kid, depending on their age, of course, moderating that to whatever is appropriate for them. But you're not going to know what's necessary or needed for your kid unless you, you speak with someone. And on top of that, you may really help them to avoid getting into some self-loathing and reflection that was unnecessary about like, well, why am I not able to focus on this? Why am I not able to do that if you nip it on an earlier level? So I don't at all attempt to say, oh, go in immediately or, you know, I always say actually to go in and talk to a trusted professional. But I would say to take a second opinion if you feel uncomfortable, right? Always seek help when something's just not working. Like if you're noticing your kid's inattentive, but you always have the right to determine treatment right? Unless it's a life or death thing, potentially. So. Love that. Okay. So let's move into trauma. So let's just start with the basics. What is trauma? Okay. So this is something where people can get very confused because it's not as simple as, as one may think. It's not, I would say to look at it as your response to an event and the long term prognosis of that versus the event itself. So I get a lot of my traumatic definitions from a wonderful author, Peter Levine, who people may be familiar with. He created somatic experiencing therapy. So trauma can be used in different contexts, but I would use it as an event that causes a long-term dysregulation in the autonomic and core extrapyramidal nervous system. Now, what does that mean? I'm drawing from Peter Levine. What on earth is that? Well, it means that it's something that is manifested in the nervous system and body. And it's not just an event. It's something that causes jumpiness. It's something, it's not just PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder is the really clinical version of that that results in dysfunction in your living, right? That's what a, a mental disorder is, is it's these things that exist, but they stop you from being able to succeed in school, work, and social life, okay? But trauma is extreme activation of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems that cause dissociation also. So trauma is something that often results from feeling trapped Mm. and unsafe. Those two elements, again, I'm drawing from Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk who wrote The Body Keeps the Score. So that'll be a resource. So if anyone is interested in learning more about trauma and how it gets stored in the body, not literally like your memories are in there, like your brain, you have a cue reminder in the environment. It hits you, your body, you go into a flashback or you go into a shock state. That's what we mean about the body keeping the score. We mean these physical reactions because mm-hmm. the, the memories during that state of heightened cortisol release are encoded in that way that are what we call state dependent, emotion dependent, right? So trauma is an event that occurs that overwhelms your coping, it releases cortisol in your body, okay? And you, and adrenaline, you feel it physically. 
And so that can be a range of things, okay? And I know we're going to talk about some examples, but it involves, as a child, the more, keep this in mind, I want listeners to keep this in mind, the more you feel trapped in an event and like you couldn't fight back, the likelier it is that there's going to be a traumatic reaction there. And the, the likelier it is that there's going to be some after effects. Now, again, don't take my word for that. That's from Bessel van der Kolk. Well, you can attach him in the description. It's a, he's a, a, a European MD who has spent, psychiatrists spent years studying this stuff. So if you felt that you weren't able to defend yourself, you felt like something happened to you or something did happen to you and you couldn't defend yourself. That's why a lot of this stuff happens in early childhood, by the way, is that's when we're most defenseless. And when something happens and we feel that our bodily autonomy is threatened and that we were violated in some way. And that includes a range of things, not just what you may think, but um, yeah. So does that, I hope that helps as a comprehensive thing. Yeah, Yeah. no, it does. But like you, you talked a little bit about it, you know, the feeling of trapped or being trapped, but how does someone know that they are experiencing trauma? How do they know that this is the, that by the feelings or associations or the symptoms that they're going through, how do they know it is trauma? Okay. How do they know it's trauma? Uh, I would say, how is it affecting your functioning? What's happening? If Are you having flashbacks? Are you having nightmares? Are you having what we call reliving symptoms? Okay. That's what those are called. Because I think we have to also be careful making people feel like they could be traumatized in a moment's notice. That's typically... Mm-hmm. Over, I mean, uh, things happen. I mean, as someone who works with trauma, I would say that we under-conceptualize things as that, potentially, meaning we don't identify it enough. But the good news is trauma has an amazingly high prognosis for, we could say, reintegration in the mind because of the therapies we have now, like EMDR and somatic experiencing. Trauma is amazingly uh, recoverable. People can can bounce back from that with the right treatment. So how do you know that you're experiencing it? How do you relate to this memory? Is it something that when you think of it, you are immobilized? Is it something that when you think of it, you're like, nope, nope, not going there. And you can't think about it because you're, you know that you will experience it in your body. Those are some questions I would ask because if the answer is yes, then you may want to go speak to a trauma-informed therapist okay. or psychiatrist. Okay. And then what are some specific examples that people have gone through to represent trauma or a trauma situation, traumatized situation? Sure. Absolutely. So living with an emotionally abusive caregiver, addiction in the household and and viewing things related to that, physical conflict in your home growing up, sustained hardship. So physical neglect, witnessing violence, because you could fear that could happen to you. You're witnessing something you're not supposed to see. Uh, Upsetting separation from a parent. So obviously things like um, war zone stuff, just being separated from a parent, fearing for your own life. Recurrent discrimination or being treated poorly based on factors that you can't control. Even the aftermath of of a volatile divorce, something that shakes your functioning and lifestyle in a way that you feel a loss, things of that nature. I mean, of course, things come to mind too. Like I want to really be be transparent. I'm not trying to leave out things like physical assault of all different kinds. I want to be aware that people may or may not even be able to hear that kind of stuff uh, without being triggered, but violation of your bodily integrity. And that can include a lot of different things. I'll say anything of that nature where you are held down and something is, is done to you. That's huge. Right. Neglect is one that's under discussed, I think. And that includes never receiving any sort of positive feedback and just generally being in, in a state of isolation. So a big one that goes along with PTSD is either experiencing or witnessing some sort of jeopardizing event to your life or others, right? So seeing someone hurt in a way that you think could kill them or yourself fearing for that, because that's what gets encoded in your mind as that overwhelming event 
So if someone really wants to start that healing journey, so they recognize this is a situation they just want to get through, what would be your recommendation in terms of what are those first steps to moving through that healing process? So excellent question. I would say take a breath and search for trauma-informed therapists. The term trauma-informed is a a buzzword. I can say that it's hyphenated, like imagine it's one word, but it's, it's something that we as clinicians use when we have a passion for working with trauma and we conceptualize that as a root issue underlying a lot of other diagnoses or conditions, or that we view that as a, a prior thing that we really want to screen for. Okay. So a lot of addiction comes from an attempt to self-regulate your emotions in a maladaptive way. So guess what? Due to trauma and emotion dysregulation, we talked earlier about how trauma can, can cause dysregulation of the nervous system. It can cause you to go into fight or flight when reminded of something. So blunting that out with addiction sounds like a great strategy if you don't have a better box of tools, which a good therapist can help you develop. And so you want to look for an EMDR therapist in your area, okay? Which is the therapy I do, which helps people to take the emotional vividness out of Mm. traumatic memories Mm. by offering bilateral stimulation, obviously just in the therapist's office or remotely, but with the reprocessing of the memory. So it takes that memory, it distracts the client and what we call offers an orienting response so the client recognizes in the present. It it desensitizes that traumatic memory because it taxes your attention Mm. with the hand movement. There's a lot of different mechanisms at play. So I encourage people, don't ever just take a therapist's word for it. Ask them about the research. Ask where you can learn more. But EMDR has a lot of empirical backing. And so you can actually go to EMDRIA, that's EMDRIA.org. So that's the EMDR International Association. That's what EMDRIA is short for. Uh, EMDRIA.org. And you can look in the upper right corner. That's where it is now as of today. And it'll say, locate a therapist near you. Find a therapist near you. And you type in your zip code. You type in your city. You find someone who's been trained in EMDR trauma therapy. Uh, you can also look for a somatic experiencing therapist. You can have a consult. A lot of times, know this, therapists will agree to give complimentary 10 to 15 minute consultations so you can figure out if you'd be a good fit for them. If they'd be a good fit for you, that's the deal is it's you want to determine if you're now, of course, you're not going to understand a person entirely or get a feel for them always in 15 minutes. You can get enough of an idea of what it's like talking to him or her but it's not going to always be enough, but at least you have that to go from and see, do I want to do an initial session for people who don't have the resources financially? You can look for community mental health agencies. A lot of great therapists get their start there and continue to work there. And some leave and do their own thing, but just to put out there for listeners, there's some amazing clinicians and agencies who make it their passion to stay there and to work with people. Uh, And a lot of private practice people will do sliding scale fee uh, structures so that people who otherwise might not be able to afford the treatment or have insurance can. And so don't ever be hopeless and think that you can't get that treatment because it sounds expensive. There's so many resources. You go to NAMI, National Alliance for Mental Illness, uh, NAMI dot, I think it's org. And you can put this maybe in the description of the podcaster, but there's so many resources for that. NAMI is a great one. Uh, They can connect people. There's a lot of peer support there. Lovely. So One of the things that people don't realize is how hard the process is, right? It's not something Mm -hmm. that you can easily move through. It takes time. It takes sometimes a lot of, like you said, remembering some painful memories until you're able Mm -hmm. to separate those. So for those people who just feel like they're going to, they just want to give up and do not want to go through this process. What is your advice to them? Okay. So I would say to take it like we have to do anything else in life. You have to look at it as one step after the, the other. You have to look at it as one step at a time. And so with trauma, the nature of your experience is to feel overwhelmed. That's what trauma is. It's an overwhelming of your capacity to cope and a feeling that you can't handle something. It's stored very helpless in the mind. And so when you've even the, the act of seeking help then becomes something that can be overwhelming and cause a shutdown response. Again, dissociation is a big hallmark of trauma that being so overwhelmed that your mind leaves and, you're, and you are frozen, right? That is a huge element of, of trauma. Um, I would say anyone who's dissociated due to a, tra- due to an, a stressor 
probably has some sort of trauma. That would be a good a good definition for that. But I'm going back into definitions here. So I will say, take it a step at a time. Get under that tendency to shut down. Okay, by negotiating with yourself. Ask to do an intake at a community mental health agency and tell yourself, I'm going to go to this. It's an hour. I'm going to just say what I'm comfortable saying. Like I've been through trauma. I want to talk to someone about it potentially. A lot of trauma-informed clinicians will not even have you share the whole narrative if you're not comfortable. Never talk about what you don't want to. But you don't always have to discuss every element of the trauma or even most or near most of it. Uh, depending on the therapy. With EMDR, I just have to know that you're safe and processing whatever it is we're working on together and that you're in the room with me on that mental level and you're not dissociating. I have to know that to proceed going forward with the therapy, but you don't have to tell me everything. So just be aware of that. If you feel like giving up because you don't want to tell the same story 50 times, you don't have to. And the shame element, the, a good trauma-informed therapist is going to be aware of how that the shame can get in the way. And they're gonna, you're gonna spend a lot of time building that relationship if that's what's needed. If you're ready to jump in and do some some processing and you're like, I'm ready to go, I want to be, I want this trauma behind me, then that will factor in. And you may move quicker than you would have uh if you weren't ready for that. So be aware the sky's the limit. Um if you feel like giving up, it's probably because you haven't had had the right resources or been aware of what's available because there's such poor messaging sometimes around mental health. It's like, oh, go get help. Well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Potentially look for an agency, uh, look for someone, look on psychology today for EMDR therapists or somatic experiencing therapists. Uh, look for those who talk about being trauma-informed. Uh, I know there's high caseloads now. I know that therapy's in demand, but there are always resources out there for trauma-informed therapy. I know because I'm where I refer people and uh, an agency setting with someone does EMDR is going to be a pretty good option if you are financially limited and you're going to learn good coping skills early on. You're going to be taught how to mentally go to a calm place, how to imagine putting away your trauma in a box with the EMDR or some other what we could call regular emotional regulation skill. That's a visualization that helps you to overcome that constant feeling of being overwhelmed. Because when you start doing that, you'll feel like doing even more. You'll feel like going even further. But that we can't, we, we underestimate at our peril how much even the trauma response gets in the way of seeking therapy. It's like a, an autoimmune thing. It's hurting the person who has it and stopping them from even getting help. So. Yeah. yeah. And actually that builds onto my next question. So there's people who have been dealing with their trauma for years, right. And have never gotten helped in to help them work through that particular trauma, traumatized situation. So what would your advice be if now they're ready? So say something happened when they were 18 and they're 40 years old and they're like, okay, I've got to work through this to move on. What would your advice be to someone who has been dealing with this for a long period of time and is now ready to work on it? Okay, so there's such a heterogeneous population there, which is a big fancy word for everybody who's potentially different. There's so much diversity there. There's people who've been dealing with it in our in our professional setting, and they just collapse whenever they don't have their work mask on, right? There's people who maybe can't on the other end and have a hard time functioning at all and just don't know what's wrong with them. So I would say so the, the, the question is what to do if people have been dealing with it and now and they're just at their at their wits end. Right. They're, they're, and they're okay. ready to ready to move through this. Absolutely. Okay, good. And that that I would say kind of the same thing. Seek some seek an EMDR therapist near you, some act experiencing therapist. Um, don't be afraid to ask what people's credentials are. It should never be offensive to a therapist. I mean, I started in the profession young and I knew it's like I didn't have the life experience. So you better get the certification. You better know what you're doing. And to be quite blunt with you, life experience alone does not a good therapist make. Just because you know something or went through it does not mean that you're equipped to help someone else go through the mechanics of healing. Because there are steps, there are certain responses that you want to know. Like, okay, we're going to pull back the EMDR reprocessing now element. Now we're going to go back into into um preparation because someone's having a dissociative reaction, whatever, um, things like that, that a trained therapist will know how to do. So be aware that you can ease into things if that's what's needed. But often it's it, it, your pace is going to, as a client, 
dictate where you go. The only way it wouldn't is if you want to jump into stuff, but there's some contraindicating factors there, meaning maybe you have a history of dissociation and therapy therapist wants to say, okay, we're going to pull back. I know you want to really dive into this, but let's safety plan. Let's prepare first and then. But that's the only situation I would think of where if a client's ready, if they feel they're ready, they're not really, they're, they're going to be told kind of hold back. So it, it, a, a, too, a lot of motivation, too little, whatever a therapist can work with, but realize that you're not going to be expected to do anything you don't want to, mm-hmm. and you're not going to be overwhelmed with it. If you ever feel that way, it's time to move on to a different counselor because counseling, yes. getting a counselor is a lot like finding a friend or anything else where you're selecting someone who's a good fit. It, there are so many different kinds out there. It's not just a one-size-fits-all thing. It's not the days of Freud. It's not, I mean, you can find someone who is within your demographic or speaks to your issues, is culturally aware and curious. There's there's going to be different people out there who fit and don't be discouraged if you, you don't jive well with the first person because that happens in other areas in life. And we don't think, well, there's no help for me or there's no mate for me. It's like, well, that let's let's look at that. That does that wasn't the therapist. There's more. Yeah, I like that. So also my thought is it's never too late, right? To get help. And I right. think because people have been dealing with it for so long and, and and it happened maybe when they were a lot younger and now they're a lot older, they feel like they they can't get any help. So, but it's not, it's not too mm. late, right? No, it's not at all. And there are many different modalities. Yeah, I'm glad you put it that way. So no, it's never too late. ADHD can't cause PTSD, but there's an emerging research that PTSD might cause ADHD, particularly in children. And don't take my word for it. There's studies out there. Um, I'll send you the research I'm drawing from the website Attitude, ADD, Etude. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a good source because they compile at the end of their articles, which are non-scholarly scholarly sources, which is what you really want to make sure is lining up with what you're, you're looking at. But so you may have been going your life with symptoms of something that you don't know. Like it's so validating to have a, have a name for it and don't live by your, don't be defined by diagnosis, but to have a diagnosis is a starting point. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I've had clients who have had years of adult and childhood abuse. And when we've done EMDR, they, stuff has snapped into place, so I'm putting it in a very slang way, meaning those memory networks that, have, that, were, that were recurring and repeatedly activated because their own children, they feared something would happen similar to what happened to them, God forbid. Doing EMDR, we took that fear away, and it's like, okay, and we placed that with the thought, I can be there for my children. I'm a safe support for my children, right? Because you can't say, I will always be there no matter what, nothing will happen to my children. That's irrational. We can't, we can't as therapists install that kind of thought. And you wouldn't, your brain would reject it anyway. But when we do EMDR work, we help clients to come up with a positive cognition that we quote install. And I've had clients who, of course, had a healthy degree of skepticism. Okay, well, I'm willing, but what's this going to look like? And then we're working with memories. That's what we're working with. We can't change the past, but we can change your perception of it. Absolutely. That's huge because your perception of the past is what keeps it alive. It's not, it's, it's gone, but our minds are what keep the past alive. And when we rewire that, then we change our relationship to it. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters how much you've been through and how long it's been going on, but it doesn't impede, doesn't stop EMDR from working. You might just have to prepare a little more or it might take a little longer, but EMDR is very, is, can be very rapid. There's even something out called rapid resolution therapy. There's accelerated resolution therapy, which I think is a, a more, it's a newer and, and I think more streamlined version of EMDR, which people can investigate on their own. I haven't been trained in that. It's, it's again, very, it's a lot newer. And EMDR is 30 years old. Okay. So it's not exactly psychoanalysis, but it has a huge amount of research behind it. So be aware that a therapist will also work with your despondency. They will. They'll work with your annoyance. Like, ah, I've waited this long. Or, or they'll, they'll work with those emotions that what we would call ambivalence of, do I want to do this? Do I not? I've had tons of clients who have come in and been like, ah, you know, now I'm getting cold feet. I'm worried about it. And I'm like, okay, here's what to expect. How can I work with you to help you to, to see that this is something? How, how, how can I meet you where you are? Because if you don't want to work on it, we don't have to. You're always welcome to retract and, and, and 
at and terminate therapy. A client's always, always able to do that. Now, if they're court ordered or now it's a court directed voluntary, then there might be some consequences, but that's still your choice. Okay. That makes sense. So now let's tie ADHD into trauma. So you started talking a little sure. bit about that, but how can trauma be specifically rated, related to someone who has ADHD? Absolutely. So there's a few different ways. Okay. This is, this is a, a huge thing. So the first is that childhood trauma can cause symptoms like inattention. Okay. Uh, hyperactivity can be an element of that. Um, emotional disturbance, anxiety, those things can stem from trauma and be misdiagnosed as ADHD. It's a huge thing. Okay. So also people got both. They, they could absolutely have either, or they could have, they could have ADHD and trauma and not be either or. Okay. So high impulsivity, altered judgment, um, seeking peer approval, attraction to risky situations, things like that can happen. And so that can be kind of what we would call a positive feedback loop, not like positive good, but positive meaning additive, like those mm. things, ADHD and traumatic impulsivity, encouraging one another in ways, right? So can, can, ain't ramping that up. Now I'm, I'm getting this from Joel Nigg, N-I-G-G, he is an absolutely awesome ADHD clinician. His stuff is pretty good. I have articles that I can present that I can, I have, he did one for Psychology Today. He did some books that we will talk about, but he is, he, he did an awesome book called Helping Kids Through ADHD and another one called Getting Ahead of ADHD. So he talks about this and I'm drawing a lot from him. Um, but be aware that they can, they can certainly appear like one another, okay? And so individuals with ADHD are also more likely than other people to experience it as traumatic. So people with ADHD can have heightened sensitivity. So events, so ADHD can be a predisposing factor to trauma, okay. meaning you have ADHD, you may be more sensitive, okay, to an event that gets encoded in your memory as trauma, that, that event may be more likely to be encoded as traumatic. Meaning again, those emotional responses later, the flashbacks, the reliving and the avoidance symptoms, okay, of avoiding stimuli that remind you of it. So those are some ways that it can come up, but um, I wanna throw out this statistic that up to 70% of trauma exposed children meet ADHD criteria. Mm. So. And so that co-occurrence of each one can worsen the other. I just spoke about that, but I just to underline that. And again, I will connect the article that talks about this because there's a scholarly article that is discussing this. I'm not pulling this figure out randomly. Very nice. And so you did talk a little bit about this, but so you are saying that a trauma experience can be heightened by someone that has ADHD. Did I understand that correctly? Absolutely. So again, because there, there's a congruence there of the kind of things that come up in the same, the same brain regions, okay? Well, so I'll just say it this way. Trauma can impact brain regions that increase different things like learning issues, um, social difficulties, attention, inattention, and hyperactivity. And so those are things that, yeah, the similarities in, in, in brain regions and, and functions that trauma and ADHD exacerbate in each other. And so it's like someone when they're having some factors leading up to a manic episode and that those being exacerbated. So people with, um, this gets beyond our purview of today. Well, the comorbidities thing, um, trauma and bipolar disorder, when they overlap the, uh, a traumatic stressor. So an environmental cue that reminds someone of a trauma can heighten emotional volatility. And as we know, um, mania is not only positive euphoria, mania can be agitation. So just imagine how uh, someone get, becoming upset due to a traumatic reminder can go into a manic phase. Okay. Someone who has a traumatic reminder in their environment may be more scattered. And then the ADHD stuff comes into play and that exacerbates that. And that's what you, you see that feedback loop there. Okay. That makes sense. And then so, how does someone work through their trauma? as they are working through their ADHD symptoms? 
Brilliant. Okay. So a few different things. So a, a, a good clinician will be able to work together. I'm saying that as a therapist. Okay. I'm saying therapist, clinician, I'm using that interchangeably. Um, can work with a psychiatrist, okay, uh, on an integrated team level. So ideally, you've got medical support, whether that's stimulant medication or not. I'm be very careful, I'm not telling you to do that. But you want to have medical and psychological support, okay, therapy and medicine. I would really encourage whatever that looks like, even if that's not, even if that's like a non-stimulant medication or whatever you and the, the psychiatrist work out, or even nothing at all, just an assessment. But you want to determine where one ends and the other begins, how they're working together. Um, and I've, so I'll give an example. Like if you have organic ADHD that is something that is separate from the PTSD, you might want to do some, some medication for that. You might end up going to a clinician who does neurofeedback. So okay. therapists can do that. Nurses can do that. Some MDs do that. But neurofeedback, that's a whole different discussion, is any sort of feedback of signal from your your body's signal, so it's different exercise. So different programs exist to turn your brain's function into beeps or on-screen activity. People can focus on that and actually change the way their brain waves are activating or not. They can decrease or, or increase different frequencies of their brain. They do the amplitudes of them. So with ADHD, they can be some fogginess and attention. That with neurofeedback and focusing on the brainwaves and focusing on changing that, you can actually reduce that. Now, anything of that nature. So neurofeedback involves getting an assessment called a quantitative electroencephalogram. Okay. Have you have you had any? Do you? I do haven't, you know, but I've heard of that because somebody else had that done. <laughs> so if you've got the disposable income for that, and or your insurance covers it, great. That's a non-medical thing. Um, you can work on ADHD with that. Work out the medication. Also for trauma, you could probably, I think there's people who've experimented combining EMDR and neurofeedback. That might be even rarer to find, but it, it exists. But you want to look at the ADHD stuff, how to strengthen your attention. Okay. You want to look at medication for that. But with trauma, you want to look at desensitization therapies. So like EMDR, somatic experiencing. Somatic experiencing guides someone through the physical reactions that they wish they could have exhibited during the traumatic event. So trauma is essentially this inhibition of response. And then when you're guided through, and the EMDR does that too, it has you relive to it in a safe extent, the event. So a reliving desensitization therapy is not going to essentially alleviate ADHD symptoms, right? Likewise, ADHD therapy for mindfulness, that, that can help with trauma, absolutely. Mm. AD, but, the, but the stimulant medication may not alleviate traumatic reminders. So you have to address both. Now, the good news is, like, the good news is experienced clinicians will know what's trauma, what's ADHD, once they tease it out and get to know you okay. as the client. But there is a way to address both because you can, the, the root of them, the symptoms manifest similarly, but the roots of traumatic memories okay, the events themselves, that's going to uh, help clients. Like if you, if you, if you give an assessment and they're like, oh, I've got the, the, these events happening. I didn't really consider it trauma at the time, but I remember them and it feels weird now. It's like, okay, probably trauma. If, if it's something that you repressed and it comes back and you feel very bizarre, unsafe, I want to be careful because people do have false memories, but they also have things that emerge that actually happen. So talk, again, talk to a clinician about it. People, people sometimes choose not to remember certain stuff and dissociate those memories. So when, when you're working with both, the thing is they look similar in those symptoms I listed, but when you, you assess it with a, when, when a good clinician gives an intake assessment, then the client, if they're able to remember the traumatic, if not, and it's like, oh, well, I never felt safe as a kid. I can't put a finger on it, but I felt really keyed up or upset. Okay. You can even work with that as a trauma target right? As an EMDR target, know that you don't have to remember every detail of your trauma to reprocess it. Not at all. You just have to be able to remember enough to get into the memory, feel it, and then ride it out with the, with the eye movement. So to really bullet point, I would say, have hope. The symptoms may look similar of ADHD and trauma, but the treatments are different. And once someone gets to know your history, they can separate out, okay, traumatic events to reprocess and desensitize attention symptoms to medicate or treat with attention strengthening stuff. Okay. All right. That makes sense. 
So you've actually talked about a lot of supportive channels. So you talked about therapy, you've talked about, you know, if they want to look into it, medication, you've talked about resources, but is there any other mm-hmm. way for people to find their needed support for when they need to work through trauma and ADHD? Sure. So the agency model, the integrated sort of community mental health agency model um, that I'm familiar with is one people may not be if they have never gone to one, if they don't, because it's like people have this model of therapy often. It's kind of the private practice model. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, You go to a therapist, you go home. It's okay. But with an agency, community mental health agency, there's peer support meaning people work there who have conditions mm. who help coach people through them, through those conditions because they have successfully been living with them. So that's a lot of what NAMI, NAMI provides some peer support. I don't, I can't, here's the issue. I can vet something like NAMI. I can say, look in your area for community mental health centers, like put your city and then community mental health centers, Google it. Uh, different Facebook groups, support channels like that. I can't really speak to the validity of because I don't, I mean, there's so many of them. If you find one that works for you, that's awesome. There's always stuff like that out there, but there's sometimes like fighting that goes on online in any, (laughs) any different venue online like that. It's not strictly professed. Yeah. So, um, I would say that support could look like finding an agency that, that offers peer support, going to NAMI, asking for resources in your area, because a lot of it is going to be geographically based. So wherever this interview reaches could be like what, what one listener could find a totally different agent, uh, excuse me, totally different set of resources than another listener. So, but the key element is NAMI is national. Okay. So that's the national alliance for mental illness. You can find stuff, chapters in your area. So I would encourage you to do that and say, I have ADHD. What, where is a living with ADHD kind of resource? Like a group, a group like that. What would that look like? Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid. I think they have a toll-free number you can call if you don't want to email or go through that route, but definitely investigate your, in what's going on in your area. If you feel like there's no help, just take one step to look up something around you and say, okay, I'm going to go, or I'm going to talk. I'm going to do this. I'm going to tune in if it's a remote thing, because uh, you wanting to be safe. Um, but that's, that's really what I would say is be aware stuff exists. You might have to Google the right terms like community mental health agency, NAMI. Yeah, that's. Okay. So definitely that's awesome. So is there any last minute information that you can give any last minute thoughts, anything we didn't cover that you would like to mention to the audience? Yeah. I want to encourage people that if they are not afraid of re-triggering or excuse me, re-traumatizing themselves, which again, that's the, the what you would have is maybe a flashback or a negative memory. Um, if, if you feel like you've been through trauma, don't be afraid to check out the adverse childhood experiences scale. If you're comfortable with that and, and aware that it asks questions about certain kinds of assault and things like that. If you want to look at what kind of stuff you've been through and get your ACEs score, which is just your adverse childhood experiences score. Be aware that the definition of trauma does not just include war or physical assault. That's such a myth. It involves other things where you felt unsafe. It, be aware that neglect takes a toll on the body and on the mind. That gets so left out. Neglect is neglected. How about that? Out of conversations about trauma. It, I've had so many clients over, over the, the years I've been working in this field who didn't give themselves permission to label something as traumatic. Mm-hmm. And now when you label as traumatic, you're not labeling yourself as a traumatized person. You're saying this memory stuck with me in a way, like a thorn in my brain, that it, there, there's a pain there that once that memory is desensitized, that memory network is desensitized, it's taken out. And so when you give yourself permission to look at something as a traumatic experience, you're not identifying as that. You are identifying it as something that can be removed. So I would really want people to take heart in that. Okay, beautiful. So is there any type of resources that you have, be it on trauma or ADHD? And actually, since you and I talked a little bit about comorbidities, since this is a comorbidity, that also too, any type of resources around any of those topics? Yeah, absolutely. So everyone, this is the part where you can pause the the interview to get ready to write something down. But (laughs) the, the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk. This is probably like the, 
third or fourth time I've mentioned it. Um, it's an amazing book. It has some stories of trauma in it, also resilience. Be aware if you're not feeling the, the safest place to read that kind of stuff. But it's an amazing book. And it discusses a lot of the brain reasons involved in trauma, does it in a conversational way, very narratively written, discusses community for, for trauma, um, finding it. Um, it discusses yoga, it discusses ancient techniques for overcoming the felt sense of trauma in the body and how we're going back to that integrated model, not just taking benzodiazepines. If you have to take those, that's fine. However, there's more. So body keeps the score is amazing for trauma. I don't believe it speaks too much to ADHD. So for that, um, you want to look at helping kids through ADHD. You want to look at getting ahead of ADHD, both by Joel Mig, PhD. Um, ADHD 2.0, of course, on Clubhouse has been going around because the yes. awesome author, yes. Dr. Ed Hallowell, MD, discusses it often. And that's his book. And it's, it's, it's a great read. I haven't, I read the whole thing. Um, I know that he discusses ADHD in depth, obviously, by the title, and he has a real passion for it. He also is a straight shooter on what he thinks works. So there's all, the study associations between adverse childhood experiences and ADHD diagnosis and severity. Okay, we can put that in description. It's a long title. That from 2017, that's what I was drawing from for statistics and, and a lot of the information there. But that is a study that was done. And so there was quite a bit of correlation with ADHD and adverse childhood experiences. And so that's why a lot of my discussion of trauma goes back to childhood in our, in our discussion today, because that's what some of the, that's what a lot of statistics have to do with. Again, that ACEs, the adverse child experiences score. Uh, and then there's a book that I saw that was really interesting called, I haven't read it, but that getting unstuck, unraveling the knot of depression, attention, and trauma by Don Kirsten, MD. I read a, a synopsis of it, and it seems to be an awesome resource for people who have gone through traumatic events that manifest as sort of inattentiveness. And so those are some things I would look into. Perfect. And if they have any more questions for you, Jeremy, how can they get a hold of you? I am I'm the, the name Fox Therapy, all one word on Clubhouse, Fox Therapy LLC on Twitter and Instagram. Those are good ways to reach me. My email address is foxemdrtherapy at gmail.com. You can include that. Now, here's a disclaimer. I am a therapist. I counsel people in my area. I can't counsel people out of state. And I'm not soliciting clients through here. And everything I've said is not therapy. It's just psychoeducation today. So people want to outreach with questions or network. I'm more than happy to do that. But I um, won't be able to counsel people unless they come to me through the proper channels at, at the current place I'm working. So, but I'd love to, I'm always open to a uh, listener and viewer response. So there you go. Awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. That was so fantastic. That was great, great information. So thank you for coming on. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So everyone that concludes another episode of ADHD love parent talk. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Bye. Bye, Jeremy. Thank you for joining us on another episode of ADHD Love Parent Talk. If you enjoyed this episode, please do not forget to leave a review and join me as I talk with another exciting guest next week. Have a wonderful day.